The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we have the pleasure of having my friend Gordon Marino, who's a very unusual individual. In fact, our mutual friend, Angelo Dundee, once called him an extraterrestrial. But Gordon is a professor of existentialism at St. Olaf's. He's a philosopher. He was a boxer. He was a boxing trainer. He's the boxing writer for the Wall Street Journal. He writes for the New York Times. And we're friends, and he always gives me a hard time. Gordon Marino, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Uh, thanks for having me on, Hacky. Great to be with you. Well, uh, because I know you so well, and I'm going to yeah. make fun of you continually. Why yeah, don't well, you you're going to be getting it back then, my friend. Okay, well, why don't you start out by introducing yourself to our audience? You just introduced me. Well, I want, don't okay. argue with me. Do it the right way. Come on, this well, is your chance. Well, I'm, I'm, that, that, that's right. I'm a professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College director of the Hong Kiergaard Library, uh, freelance writer, writes for a lot of different outlets, and uh, a boxing trainer still, and boxing writer. And uh, I've just written a book called The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age from Harper One, and it came out in April, and uh, that's and all. It's that's a great book. There it is, it's yeah, a great book right here. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, Gordon, tell us how you got into existentialism. Okay. Well, first it might be helpful to tell people what existentialism is, right? So I'll give a little mini lecture on that. So existentialism is a, a movement basically uh, that, that includes uh, philosophers uh, such as Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Sartre, and authors such as Kafka, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and uh, playwrights, Ionesco. So it's a very motley crew of people, and they don't. The only person who ever identified himself as an existentialist was Jean-Paul Sartre. Right. So what links these thinkers together is the certain themes. For example, emphasis on choice, on freedom, on uh, what's the questions like what's the meaning of life, and uh, there's somewhat. Uh, skeptical about that we can come to understand life through pure reason so there's a little bit of skepticism about reason some of them are atheists some of them are true believers so it's a very uh, it's a it's quite a crew of it's a quite a disparate crew of people and i came to them because i was a very uh in a lot of a lot of heartache and trouble as a kid i went through a divorce in my 20s and uh ended up it was in a mental hospital and all this and uh i encountered Kierkegaard and he was very helpful to me. Well, we're, we appreciate you being here and I tell you, in, um, in reading your book, which I have not quite finished yet, The Existentialist Survival Guide, it was enlightening to me how much overlap there was with everything Different Brains is about, with neurodiversity, with mental health issues, with brains just being different. And I was very proud of you, and I admire you greatly because you really bared your soul in that. You've had a tough go. 
you've had every kind of neurodiversity there is and lots of mental health challenges and everything else. Thank you. And you're still standing. You're still I'm standing. Still standing. I'm wobbling, but his legs are rubbery, but he's still standing. Yeah, well, one of the things that attracted me to Kierkegaard in particular was this view that in order to be a good a good person, you need to be able to deal with uh, some very difficult moods. It's easy to be, it's pretty easy to be nice when all the lights are green and everything's going well, but that's not always going to be the case in life, right? And in order to, if, if one of our, if our major goal in life is to be a good human being, or in say Kierkegaard's case, to have faith, then we've got to be able to have, we've got to be able to uh, deal with these difficult emotions. Um, you know, a lot of times you hear of existentialism, and it's ter in terms of existential angst, okay? And how does that overall aspect affect one's anxiety and one's mood overall? Well, the idea of existential angst would be that because we're, we're human beings, we're born free, and we have to make choices all the time without any, any objective guidelines for it. So that's the primary notion of existential angst, right? So that I have to make all these moral decisions in life and there's really no book you can turn to to make them. So that's what existential anxiety is about. It's about the anxiety that comes with being human beings. Right? And so there's a little bit of a different, uh, so one of the things that different, that's different about the existentialists is they would say, uh, instead of saying anxiety is a symptom or a disease or whatever, they, they would say that, uh, in general, it's a, it's a sign that we're, it's our way of appropriating the fact that we're free human beings, that it's part of what it is to be human, that's the experience of freedom. Now that is, they still think that, someone like Kierkegaard still believes that anxiety could lead you to uh, very bad things, even suicide. But at, at, at bottom, he says it's a great thing, it's, a, the, the, it's, it's an important thing. He even says that uh, to learn to be anxious in the, right, in the right way is the ultimate lesson in life. If I were going to ask you, what does existentialism and neurodiversity have to do with each other? For instance, in your book, you talk about um, the, the moods, the depression, the feelings, the emotions. It's not something to just take a pill. It's something to examine and, and get involved with. And, Explain it from your point of view, the relationship as you see it between existentialism and the fact that all of our brains are different, whether we're talking about mental health uh, issues or challenges, whether we're talking about um, neurological conditions, and whether we're talking about intellectual differences. Well, there's certainly a call on my book to learn to sit with these difficult emotions and to and for self-reflection. And I think in our society, uh, we, we just see, say, anxiety, for example, as something to get rid of as quickly as possible, and that there's no need to reflect on it, uh, just take, you know, try a different regime of pills or whatever. Or on the other hand, you get a lot of this stuff about uh, seven steps to uh, getting rid of anxiety or seven steps to forgiving yourself, these methodologies. And uh, existentialism would uh, certainly emphasize this the need for uh, self-reflection more. Understand what's going on. What are, what are you anxious about? You know? Um, self-reflection. So, yeah, self-reflection. 
So, uh, for example, yesterday I was uh, I had an article that had been accepted somewhere, and this, um, and uh, egomaniac that I am, uh, I'm saying, I'm, you know, I'm going to teach a seminar, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it and uh, worrying about it, like it really matters. It doesn't matter at all, right? Uh, and, um, and I said, what the hell? What the, who cares if the article? You know, what's the? What are you worried about? What's What's your uh, attachment to these badges and to these publications and things like that? Uh, uh, they, why would, you know? So I was able to catch myself and you know wonder what's behind this anxiety, right? right? What's behind? You know, as though uh, uh, you know uh, what's behind this need for affirmation all the time? Uh, this, this ego, you know. Uh, so here I had this anxiety. Reflect about what to try to get beneath it. What, what's it about? Because it's completely rational at some level, you know. Well, you're a dopamine addict. So you have to you have what? to produce dopamine all the time. Would you say you're dopamine? <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Dopamine or dopey? Well, to me, you know, I know that you, me, and a third mutual friend of ours, Angelo Dundee, may he rest in peace, who had 15 world champions, including Muhammad Ali, we disagreed amongst ourselves about certain things. But one thing, and, and I remember very well Angelo Dundee saying to me while we were making the documentary that's still in development about him, he said, Hacky, for you, Boxing's a metaphor for life. For me, it's how I make my living. It doesn't mean I'm any less caring about it. And I remember having this discussion, and I know that boxing has been a metaphor for life for me. And, and you know, you you judge a champion by what he does after he gets off the canvas, you know, right. after he's right. been knocked down, and you have to answer the bell every round. And tell us, in your view, how... Um, Sports in general, but boxing in specific, has had an effect on you, and the what makes you. And one of the words I love in your book is that makes you authentic. Mm -hmm. Well, ten concussions is one thing, uh, but uh, aside from that, the, one of the reasons I talk about boxing in the book a lot is a uh, is I, I see it as a in order for, again, we need to be able to deal with things like anxiety. And as you know, uh, boxing gives you a workshop on anxiety. And I work with my boxers a lot on being comfortable with it, not not freaking out about being panicked before a fight. So it's a real, it's a very, uh, in, in the right conditions, it's a very supervised place to practice dealing with anxiety. And we don't get much of that in our society. You know, so that's one of the, re that's one of the reasons I've uh, stuck with it, and, and as you know, it's a crazy sport, and I, we both curse it sometimes. And and, and also, uh, and as much as I work with, uh, I'm lucky, privileged to work with a lot of kids. Uh, there's a lot of kids who've uh, never experienced any affirmation in, in life, and uh, you know they come from difficult homes, and they're angry, they get in trouble in school, uh, and no one ever says they're they're good at anything. No one gives them any love, you know, uh, and. Uh, they come to the boxing gym and uh, and they get some pats on the back and they can really blossom. So we one of the things there is we all need affirmation. So boxing provides practice with that anxiety, and also when people stick with it, an affirmation that can really 
make them blossom into wonderful human beings. Very well said. Um, I remember Angelo emphasizing, Angelo Dundee, you can only work with what you got, meaning he, he got very well that everybody's brain is different. And he would tell about the different champions and how he would work with them all differently. You do a significant amount of boxing training. Uh, do you treat everybody the same or you treat them all individually? No, definitely individually. I take that, taking some lessons from Angela on that. I don't try to impose the same, same uh, regimen or same psychology on everyone. Now, Gordon, I know we're going all over the place. Let's get back to, let's get back to the, uh, the existentialist survival guide. Tell our audience how existentialism helped you get through your tough times. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I, I, as as I mentioned, you know, well, for one thing, uh, from Kierkegaard, I, I was going through very, very bad times, and it helped me uh, somehow to think that uh, suffering wasn't a stench, psychic suffering, suffering wasn't a stench, but something you could do with uh, uh, dignity or, or not. That it was an activity to suffer. To, suffer, to be able to suffer with dignity and uh, and, and do it well, that uh, and that there's a lot of suffering in life, and that's a task we're all going to have. We're going to lose people. Terrible things are going to happen, you know. And uh, to 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 be brave, to try to be brave with that, and um, he was inspiring in that way. That really helped me a lot. And another thing I, I'd like uh, our audience to now that we're off the boxing for a few minutes, <laughs> right? is uh, I think one of the most important chapters in the book for me was the one on depression and despair on the distinction between a psychological disorder, or as you would probably say, a neurological disorder, and a spiritual disorder. And uh, one of the claims in there is that, uh, you know, we can't control what our moods are a lot of time, or a lot of us can't. They come in and out like the weather, or precipitated by certain events, but we still have a relationship to our moods. Right, so if I'm feeling really down, depressed, or sad, or something like that, I can still I still have a decision whether or not to try to go out there and be a loving, good human being to reach to that pain, or to just be completely consumed by my feelings of melancholy. And so this idea that we we have on the one level moods, and on another level, this observing ego, or whatever you want to say, that has some decision about how to interpret those moods. How to uh, how, and what my duties are, even with those moods. Yeah. So uh, I, I and so the spiritual spiritual disorder would be when uh, I called Kierkegaard calls despair as opposed to depression. It might be when I you know, you're depressed and you just completely identify with yourself with your depression, kind of give up all your moral aspirations, your spiritual aspirations, and completely identify with yourself with the, with the blues. You know, and and I part of I came to this a little bit from an experience in the mental hospital when uh, there was a woman who uh, who tried to commit suicide a bunch of times. And when I was in the hospital, she'd bring me coffee in the morning, and I was much better. You know, she was in much worse shape than I was, and she was reaching through her pain. So this is the importance of being able to reach through her pain and not not being totally identified with these moods. I think is important, and not something that the medicalization of experience has uh, kind of encourages. You know, I was very much moved in, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. Yeah. 
when he describes in the Holocaust, he's, he's there and he's moving dead bodies of his friends and there's a stench and he looks out through the window and he says, you have a choice. You have a choice to say, this is all terrible and life is not worth living. Or you can say, this is horrible. I hope we get through this and learn something from it. But that's a beautiful sunset, you know. Yeah, that, that was very, that's a very... That's a great moment in the book to pick out, pick out Hacker. Yeah, you're right. Gordon Marino, how does our audience find out more about you or get in touch with you? Where do they go? Well, they can, in order to, I'm on Facebook, uh, they can certainly uh, contact me that way. I'm on email too, so marino at stoloff.edu. You can always contact me that way. I have, a, uh, so it's M A R I N O at S T O L A F dot edu. Happy to answer any questions. Uh, there's a uh, uh, there's a page on Harper One for about my book and me, and uh, those are some ways. I'm happy to talk with anybody. I've been answering. Uh, if people contact me by email, I'll get back to them. Whatever. I really enjoy the inter interaction. Is there anything, any topic we have not covered that you would like to cover today? Uh, okay. So yeah. So yeah. Maybe maybe this one. I think is a. Uh, uh, and the, uh, the, the beginning of the book, the first three chapters are anxiety, depression, death. And uh, one of my students once says, I want to get this book for my girlfriend. I said, I don't think that's the, I don't think it's a lovey-dovey book to get, right? right? But in the end, there's, there's also discussions. There's also a chapter on, on, uh, on morality, faith, and love. And the chapter on love, uh, I pull pretty much out of uh, Dostoevsky, in which uh, Dostoevsky makes this claim that uh, I think Dostoevsky teaches us that one of the big challenges of love is being love, accepting love for who you are. So a while back, a close friend of mine's wife died and they had a very difficult marriage. And he was in Europe, actually in California. And uh, I called him up and asked him how he was feeling. And he said, she knew me and she loved me, you know. And that's, that, and, and being able to accept love by someone who really knows you is is quite a is quite a uh, it's quite a, it's quite a task and a challenge and and I think a really part of and something we ignore a lot of time we want to be loved for our ideal self or for being cool or, and uh, don't often see it, it is hard to accept love right and I, I think that's a really important insight about love right that to be being loved for who you are and what a special special thing that is when it happens. Uh, that relationship, that kind of intimacy and closeness. So I think that's something I'd like our, our, our audience to think about. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Gordon Marino, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for spending your time. And you are authentic. Uh, thank you. I'm really honored to be on. I really enjoyed the give and take with you. It's a, it was a pleasure. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.